This is the L2 Capital Podcast with hedge fund manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have a very special guest today, Bram van der Roust, a uranium trader. Very little is known about this profession, and I personally spoke to Bram when I was in London in September and invited him to come to this podcast, which he very kindly agreed. So today we're going to find out a little bit more about a uranium trader's job, what they do, how they do it, and the importance of their actions for the market. And to help us understand it better, Bram, who is a chemical engineer, will shine a light on the subject. So Bram, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you very much, Marcelo, and uh, thank you very much, everyone, to listen to this program. I'm uh, happy to shine some light on the uranium space and uh, give some insight as to what the dark arts of trading are. (laughs) Brilliant. So to start with, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself, what you have done and how you ended up as a uranium trader? Yes, no problem. So my name is Bram van Roost. I'm currently the head of uranium for a commodity firm based out of London called Curzon Resources. We trade under the name Curzon Uranium Trading. It's a firm where we um, have a dedicated uranium desk, which basically mm-hmm. means that we buy and sell uranium and uh, are active in the markets, uh, both on the spot market and on the long-term markets on a daily basis. Personally, I uh, rolled into the mm-hmm. uranium space in, uh, I think it was 2014, when I joined Itochu, the um, large Japanese trading house, and I joined them on their uh, uranium or their nuclear desk in the London office. Prior to that, I had done other commercial roles in, uh, in different commodities and in different settings. But in 2014, so I ended up uh, working for the Japanese and getting to know uranium. And as the saying goes in, in, the, in the nuclear space, once you roll into it, it's very hard to get out of it. So um, I've been in it for, uh, for about six or seven years now, and um, I'm still very much enjoying it. it. It's a niche commodity. It's a very small market with um, a limited amount of people, but it's a very enjoyable and very nice market in the sense that it's um, we all believe the, the fuel for the future. So uh, it's nice to be part of that. Excellent. So what exactly does a uranium trader do? You mentioned that it's a niche market. So and how is the market? Um, as a uranium trader, much like a lot of other traders, uh, it's it's very simple. We buy and we sell uranium. And that's at least the simplicity of, of what we do. In reality, it gets a bit more complicated. Um, obviously, we are active on a daily basis into into the market. And um, as a uranium trader, you obviously you have, a, you have a function in the market as well. So you're not just trying to make some money in the middle, but um, you provide liquidity to, especially in nuclear um, fuel, which is uh, is much needed. That generally is, is a gap between when producers want to want to sell their commodity or their, their uranium, which is usually as quickly as possible after they mine it to convert it into cash, and when nuclear utilities or utilities who run nuclear reactors uh, when they need to buy the uranium because there's usually long lead times before they they need it and before they, um, they actually need that material. So as a trader, you provide a, a liquidity function a a time swap function, um, but you also provide other optimization functions in the sense that the physical movement of uranium and the physical um, attributes uh, might not re- really align with 
where buyers need their material and where sellers are selling their material. Um, so traders can smoothen these things out. So effectively, as a trader, you um, you're a solution provider to to the industry, and obviously in, in the middle, you you make some money out of it, uh, ideally. But uh, it's very much about providing solutions to uh, buyers and sellers. Brilliant, brilliant. Because that would be my next question. Because utilities are big companies with deep pockets, and uh, uranium mines uh, could also be big guys. So why would they need traders for and and uh, the importance of a trader for this market? So you you, you pretty much uh, answer that in the in this uh, in this question. But can can you describe to us your day to day activities uh, from the moment you arrive in the office until you leave? Yeah, no problem. I mean, first of all, the most important thing is uh, we we check on the markets uh, not just when arriving but uh, throughout the day. Uranium is is an actively traded market throughout the day from uh, it's a twenty four hour market. It can traded from all day from Chinese hours to the, the late American hours. So the market price changes and, and we keep an eye on that, obviously. We're also very active in talking to other market participants, uh, whether it be our, our peers or whether it be um, the producers, the, the buyers of uranium. So we're always um, scouting around for, for opportunities and trying to find out where we can actually add some value. Um, very important as well to be able to actively be a market participant in this space that you understand the space well. Um, so we do a lot of, uh, especially we occurs, we do a lot of fundamental fundamental analysis, meaning that we try to understand exactly what drives this market, what um, the drivers are in the sense of um, supply demand, what sort of effects the news can have on the market. Um, so we were obviously uh, very well in, in tune with um, whatever drives uranium and, uh, and nuclear practices, uh, which can yield from Chinese policies on, on, on energy all the way to um, to temperatures in France um, to understand whether they need to shut down their reactors if the, if the rivers are getting too warm. So it's a pretty all-encompassing um, um, space to, to keep an eye on, um, and and that's roughly what we do on a, on, a, on a daily basis. And uh, obviously, we uh, in the meantime we also conduct our, our normal business where we do our, uh, our purchasing, our selling, and uh, and everything that, that's related to that. Interesting. So uh, you mentioned there you you talk to utilities and other traders all day, read many reports, and have your finger on the pulse of the market. So how are you seeing the uranium market today? Is, is the market getting tighter? Do, do you think prices are fair at these levels or do you expect them to go up in the near future? What is the sentiment towards uranium at the moment? Um, that's a very good question and, and a bit of a difficult one to answer. But um, I guess the uranium market, it's obviously tightening on the, on the supply side. Uh, and it's been tightening for a couple of years now where we have seen some important mines, most predominantly MacArthur River in Canada, shut down recently or, or last year. There's been some other um, cuts in the uranium market on the, on the supply side. So from a supply side perspective, the uranium market is, is really been tightening. But to really understand what's happening in the market today, we need to go back all the way to, to Fukushima because Fukushima was the, the main driver for, for the market um, that we find ourselves in today. And shortly after Fukushima, there's obviously been a lot of uh, demand uh, gone offline. Germany uh, is closing all the reactors. Obviously, Japan has, has, um, has shut down all of the reactors uh, temporarily, some of them. But um, so the demand, the supply demand balance changed um, dramatically after Fukushima. And a lot of what we're seeing today in the market is, is still sort of reverberating from, from that effect. Um, the few years after Fukushima, there was a lot 
lot of material on the market and, and a lot less demand. So there's been a lot of inventory building up, a lot of overhang, which is um, which is knocking around the market. And only over the last few years have we actually seen inventories coming down again and the market into a more balanced position. If we then look at what, what the situation is today, uh, we're looking at a market where the um, supply-demand balance has shifted um, from an, an oversupply into an undersupply, at least on a purely annual supply-demand balance basis. And what that does, it, it, it heightens the market in the sense that if, if there's an undersupply, obviously that material needs to come from somewhere and therefore inventories are released back into, into the space and previously built-up inventories are, are now coming into the market to fulfill these, these demands. This is, is a tendency that we're seeing moving forward as well. And with each year, the market tightens a bit further and, and the sources um, available for supply become scarcer and scarcer to the extent that we see um, only a few main sources in the market right now, predominantly obviously Kazakhstan um, and then Australia, Canada and Niger. But all other sources are really drying up or at least are no longer available in, in the Western markets. So we are seeing a tightening market. Um, prices have started increasing again, um, first at the beginning of this year, but then they, they sort of went back down and they are increasing again right now. The actual time frame on what's going to happen with prices and, and moving forward is quite difficult to predict. Um, I think most of the market participants are... Um, are in accordance in the sense that, or I'll agree that if, if there's no new supply coming online, then we will see increased prices in, in the 2020s. But it's very hard to, to say when and how that is going to happen because the, the overhang of, of inventories and the release of inventories into this market. Brilliant. Um, you, you mentioned the inventories. Do you follow the available inventory in the industry? Is it, is it possible to track it? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? It's a lot harder to track than... Uh, than some other commodities. So there's no, there's very little precise data on inventories. Unlike what you see in, for example, the oil market, uh, we can see inventories quite a lot more openly. It's, there is some public data available on inventories, uh, predominantly from uh, the Western world. So on an annual basis, both the US and the European institutions, they publish what the inventory levels are in the industry. But from there, there's a lot of pockets of inventory that are harder to pin down, which is predominantly China, um, Japan, Korea, um, and some of the other um, Eastern Eastern nations. So as much as possible, we try to keep um, a view on that. And then we obviously do have a view on that, but it's, it's hard to really estimate it completely accurately. I got it. So um, Chemical announced that it wanted to buy at least 10 million pounds of uranium between now and the end of the year. What do you make of this announcement? Do you think they will push prices up? Um, again, a good question. Uh, yet again, a, a difficult one to answer with a simple answer. Yes, Capco has publicly announced that they need to buy X amount of um, pounds uh, for this year. And, and they will obviously do so because they need to use those pounds to fill, fulfill sales contracts that they have. Um, so when they put MacArthur River down, they uh, they still have the obligations of the sales contract, which which they need the material for. And a big, a big question whether that will have an effect on prices in the short term is the extent to how Cameco buys that material in the markets. What we see is that there are still pockets of material available in the markets. Um, 
predominantly again Kazakh sources, uh, which come into the market and the spot market in, in various different avenues. So the real question is, which sources are li- larger? Is is Cameco's demand, um, this, the 10 million pounds estate, is that enough to absorb all of that material that's that's available, or is there more material available that's willing to come into this market and be placed? And if Cameco doesn't really buy aggressively um, on the spot market, then then there won't be much of an effect. But in reality, you can never really discuss this without discussing prices. Um, the material available at the current price levels is, is obviously going to be a lot less than the material available at, uh, at price levels that are 30, 35, maybe 40, uh, whatever those those levels might be. In theory, yes, obviously it's a positive, uh, the, the purchasing by Camco is a positive effect in the market, but whether it will have a, a big effect this year is very much due to be seen and we need to understand how Camco goes about purchasing this material. Got it. Is it possible to see different prices for the same material? Let's say a million pounds of uranium in Canada might trade at a premium or discount to to the same material in Europe? Um, that is possible. Um, there's obviously an element of arbitrage between the two prices because there is, if you shift the flow of material, um, then you can obviously uh, arbitrage that out. Um, but the market does diverge um, every now and again between the different locations, mainly because to understand that, you need to understand where utilities buy their material, um, which are ultimately the end buyers of, of uh, uranium. And they buy their material wherever they need to have the material converted to UF6 which is the next stage in, in the value chain of uranium. And if there's more demand at one location because more utilities are nominating that location as a delivery point because that's where they're buying the next stage, then the prices might temporarily diverge between the two locations because there's just more demand. But ultimately, that will always be leveled out uh, because of the, the arbitrage that's available with the, with the actual physical material. Got it, got it. So uh, do you think it's possible that uh, what happened to the conversion market could also happen to the yellow cake market? Uh, I think the conversion market is a very good example of what long term will happen in uranium and, and is very likely to happen. Conversion is obviously it's an even smaller market than it is uh, than utilities. Um, there's less actors and there's less um, people who produce it. So um, in that sense, what happened in the conversion market with uh, Convodyne shutting down their plant was a very big event, even though that the sort of supply that was taken offline wasn't that big, but especially for the Western market where there's only three real conversion facilities and conversion centers and the delay in, in the setting up of the um, Orano conversion center, it had a real profound impact, uh, predominantly because Confidine did very much what Cameco is doing on, on the U2A8 side right now is they bought a lot of material uh, or a lot of conversion into, into the market prior to shutting down the, the facility and they really created a squeeze in, in the conversion market. And I think it's it's a good precursor for what potentially might happen in the, in the uranium market as well. The same sort of factors play on, on both markets. There is uh, for both markets um, a source of um, secondary supply from from inventories, from um, underfeeding, uh, from displacement via mocks and, uh, and reprocessed uranium. And what we're seeing on, in conversion right now is that the market is very tight because there's very little um, inventory that's coming into the market and that people are willing to release. There's there's still inventories available, but people are not willing to release it and um, notably thinking about, for example, the Japanese inventories or the long-only funds. And that's all created a really big squeeze into this market. And I believe that the same could be possible on on uranium. Um, If there is enough supply that's gone offline right now on uranium that we are undersupplied. Um, And if nothing changes, then ultimately there will be a squeeze in the market. But again, the the timing and the severity 
of that squeeze uh, are very much to be seen in, in uranium. It's uh, that's that's the hardest part to focus on, on uranium when, when and how it's going to happen. Sure, sure. Well, if we knew that the answer, right? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, we we see more and more mines getting put put into care maintenance or just shutting down, whilst demand keeps on increasing. Uh, could you please let us know your thoughts on the industry overall? Um, I think again, it, it comes down to the same thing what I said earlier: the um, price levels where they are right now, they're, they're not incentivizing mines to um, to stay open or let alone increase uh, new production or, or incentivize new production. A lot of it's taken a long time for the market and and the mines to react to these low prices, mainly because uranium is usually it's it's a long term commodity, so a lot of the contracts are, are long term contracts. Um, at fixed prices, meaning that um, mines can survive for longer than in, in other markets because they're covered by long-term prices. But in that sense, we, we see exactly what you would see in any other commodity that is um, if the prices don't incentivize mining, uh, if they don't cover the mining cost, then ultimately the mine decide to shut down or be put on care and maintenance. And uh, as long as prices are in at the levels where they are, where they are right now, in, in the around 25 level or, or below, um, we will see this process um, um, incentivizing uh, or is it we carry on in the sense that more mines might come offline. The demand is indeed increasing, uh, mainly driven by, by the Chinese new reactor build program, but also don't forget about India and, and Russia who are both um, expanding their reactor programs. So we'll ultimately need new mines to come online or the mines that have been put in care and maintenance to come back online. If if anybody would look at the um, the WNA report that was recently released in, in September, you see that as time progresses, there is a very big uh, divergence between what supply is available and, and what the demand side needs. And, and that supply that's available becomes less and less as mines start depleting as well. I guess the, the question is, there is there is mines available. There is uh, more than enough resources. Um, uranium is, is a commodity that's uh, abundantly available in the world, but it needs the right price to incentivize this production to come online. That's the underlying thesis for, um, for saying that the markets will ultimately need to recover the same way that the conversion market did to to price levels where it covers the marginal cost of production. But yet again, um, the time frame of that is difficult to, to understand because there is um, all these secondary supplies that might come into the market or might not come into the market, um, which play a role in, in that game. Brilliant. Uh, so, Brian, before I let you go, in your opinion, what are the risks in the uranium market right now that people are not paying attention to, both on the upside and, and downside? I think, I mean, one of the major risks, um, I don't know whether not paying attention is the right word, but that's uh, that has been overlooked by, especially by utilities for a while, is the fact that as material, as mines go offline, is that the, the squeeze on, on the supply side is not only happening in, in absolute pounds, but it's also happening in, in production centers um, there where we used to have um, a good 10, 15 countries who are all producing uranium. The real production sources in uranium are, can be boiled down to about four or five countries right now, which means that utilities are overly exposed to the same countries. Most of them are geographically difficult uh, difficult locations. So if there's ever any sort of geographical or po political matchup or, uh, or difficulty, then that might have a big effect and there might be a big exposure there for uh, for utilities. I guess a, a real big um, thing that's, that's uh, I wouldn't say missed, but probably misunderstood by 
the investor community is um, inventories and and um, how inventories work in this space. I think we've we've spoken about it quite a lot already, but um, there is a big scare that Japan Japan might release uh, loads of their inventories onto the onto the market. But I think we need to look at the, at the mobility of those inventories. Our inventories are not just all held in, in uterate form. Um, there's a lot of um, material that's sitting in uh, in actual fuel rods, uh, which don't particularly come into the market quite easily. Um, and just in general, the Japanese inventory is not as mobile as most people think. So that that's a big effect. Uh, but also, I think the, the biggest part about inventory is that the absolute number of inventories that, that are sitting somewhere in, in the world and in diff- at different sources is, is a really large number. Um, but it's always, it always has been. And it's mainly the change of inventories, uh, whether inventories are increasing or inventories are decreasing, which has an impact on, on what prices do in the market. And I think that might be misunderstood by the special investors community. And the other thing is um, the lead times that it takes to bring new mines online. Um, unfortunately, bringing uranium mining online is not just um, is, is not drilling a hole and, and then getting it out of the hole. Um, it takes three, five, maybe 10 years, depending on, on the jurisdiction. So um, people and utilities specifically all would, like, especially need to start planning for the long term. They need to start looking at, um, at their demand for 2030 and, and beyond already because if they want to incentivize new production, they need to um, they need to start looking at that right now because there's not a lot of sources available right now that could come online uh, straight away. Even the idle mines that are out there, it will take a few years for the, the mines to get restarted. And so by the time that the material is needed, it might be too late for them to restart. But also uh, on the on the downside, there's also some, some risks and some uh, some parameters that need to be taken into into account. Um, the most prominent one is uh, is the, probably the most difficult one, which would be the policy. Um, so the, the country policy on, on energy. A quick shift in policies can um, cause a dramatic effect on, on the demand for uranium, uh, which is exactly what we saw with Germany, for example, when they decided to close all of their reactors. And as the energy market is moving more into CO2 neutral or uh, carbon efficient production of energy, um, we see more and more demand potentially for uranium um, and nuclear. But it could also be easily displaced by solar and wind, uh, where countries take a view uh, um, that uranium or nuclear power is no longer part of the uh, of a green energy policy and, and therefore shut down their, their nuclear reactors. So that's a, that's a big potential on the downside. Secondary to that is also the technological advancement in um, in the space. As the space moves, uh, moves forward, there's more and more fuel developed that is um, more efficient, so it uses less uranium. There's different types of fuel developed. Um, I'm thinking thorium fuel and thorium reactors. Um, most of those factors are, are probably very long-term and, and won't be really developed until 2030, 2040 and, and beyond. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on um, to understand where the, the long-term demand for uranium is going to go. Brilliant. Those are all great points, Bram. So again, uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Your insights are very valuable and I can't thank you enough for coming to this program. Uh, you're welcome. No problem. Thank you very much, Marcelo. Thank <laughs> you. Talk to you soon, Bram. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. 
L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. <laughs>